Last month, the journal Science published an article that made popular headlines. For example, in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and a host of other publications, it presented the strong evidence of human existence in America some ten thousand years earlier than previously believed by the scientific community. Did you know that early Native Americans were more skeletally diverse than modern Native Americans? And this segment of our story takes us through a bit of past racism. In the history of anthropology, hey there, news peelers. Today is October twenty-nine, two thousand twenty-one, and this is Adele with the Peel a history podcast for our news and current affairs. Once a week, we select a news item and peel the history behind it to gain perspective from the past. <laughs> oh boy! Sometimes history gives us a good laugh. Sometimes it offends, and sometimes it just it just shocks. Like, did that really happen? I'm telling you, you can't make up some of this stuff that happened in our past. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink. And let's get into it. Recently, discovery of evidence of early humans in White Sands National Park, New Mexico, was on the news, and in a big way. But it wasn't the type of evidence that we usually think of. There were no structures. No tools, no skeletons. They were footprints, footprints from more than twenty thousand years ago. For example, footprints that showed a human walking a straight path for a mile and a half. Another showed a prehistoric woman who traveled for almost a mile with a toddler, sometimes carrying the child and sometimes making the child walk by her side. And other footprints and tracks were made by children. So far, scientists seem convinced that these footprints provide unequivocal evidence of human presence in America between 21,000 years to 23,000 years ago. And the reason this is big news is that these footprints are about 10,000 years older than any other human footprints known in America. So, differently, they demonstrate human presence in America. Ten thousand years earlier than scientists had believed to be the case, until this discovery. They also showed that humans lived in the American Southwest during an ice age, when massive sheets of ice blocked their migration from Asia to Alaska. This finding has been described by various scientists as a bombshell, shocking, breathtaking, and the biggest discovery about the peopling of America in a hundred years. And here is something else: If humans were in fact present in New Mexico some twenty-three thousand years ago, then they must have started spreading south from Alaska even way before that. To better understand what all of this means, and to also better understand the science of anthropology, we spoke with Mr. Jonathan Marks, a professor of anthropology at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. 
Professor Marx teaches biological anthropology, human variation, and human origins. He's the recipient of many awards and honors, too many to enumerate here. But I will share three examples of his many publications. The Alternative Introduction to Biological Anthropology, a 2018 book, Is Science Racist, a 2017 book, Tales of the Ex-Apes, How We Think About Human Evolution, a 2015 book. Links to Professor Mark's academic homepage, which lists his research and provides information for his many publications, projects, and awards, is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Marks and I peel the history behind this news. This podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Google, and Apple. And if you're listening to us on Apple, please write us a review. And don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor Marks, it is such a pleasure to have you on our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure, sir. So let's start with the beginning. Why did humanity begin in Africa? Why, why not Australia, Brazil, or India, right? Well, you know, that's a, that is a very good question. And that's one that 100 years ago, anthropologists were very vexed by. And, vexed um, by? Well, there, there is a lot of racist baggage attached to the study of human origins. And one of the things we've worked really hard to do in the last century is shed it. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, there, Darwin had imagined that uh, Africa was the place that people emerged, but he probably was saying that for reasons of, well, that's where the most primitive people are. And um, so there were also people who thought that uh, uh, Europe or Asia, not Africa, um, was a better place for, for people to have emerged because that's where lighter people were. Um, anyway, it turned out that um, chimpanzees and gorillas are genetically our closest relatives and chimpanzees and gorillas live in Africa. Um, That's also where all of the fossils from, you know, six or seven million years ago are. And six or seven million years ago seems to be about the time that our, that the beginning of our lineage, that's, that's like gonna evolve into humans and not going to evolve into chimpanzees um, that's where it seems to be. There are, of course, th- there are apes in, in Asia, orangutans. Exactly. I was going to go there. Yeah, go ahead. But actually, our uh, DNA is much more similar to chimps and gorillas than it is to orangutans. So they seem to be further off on the tree. So that's where we branched off in Africa. Yeah. And, and if we saw the, if we saw those creatures that that are, you know, just on our lineage and not on the chimp lineage, they would basically look like apes. 
uh, except that they would have two strange features that you just don't see in chimpanzees. One is they'd be walking on two legs. Um, and two is that they'd have very small canine teeth, which is something that's a human feature and not a chimp feature. You know, chimps have big canine teeth, much bigger in the male than in the female. Humans have non-sexually dimorphic small canine teeth, same size in men and women, um, and also quite small. So you can't really defend yourself the way a chimpanzee would. What um, do you and, mean by non-sexually dimorphic human teeth? Okay, sexual dimorphism refers to how different men look from women or males look from females. Oh, so I see. So in I a see. chimpanzee or a gorilla, um, the, the males not only are physically larger than the females substantially, but also their canine teeth. Oh, yeah, are much larger in the males than the females. And they use that, you know, for social things, for, for defense, for attack, things like that. Um, and our canine teeth in human beings are the same size in men and women. Um, and pathetically small. So presumably those ancestors must have had another way of defending themselves um, because the traditional ape ways were not going to work for them. That just seems to be the first, the first two things in our lineage are bipedalism and small canine teeth. I use the term humanity here. Um, I asked, why did humanity begin from Africa? And I'm almost catching myself in that is that even the right term should i be saying homo sapiens instead or is is humanity was humanity larger than you and i than humans well what what i just answered was the beginning of the hominin lineage sort of the non-ape lineage um we can answer that same question a very different way with what's the beginning of our species. Now, there are a bunch of other species in between the beginning of our non-ape lineage and the big brain, small-faced, um, uh, hairless, well, not just up here, but on the rest of our body, overall body yeah. <laughs> um, uh, creatures that we are today. Um, you know, there's the genus Australopithecus, there's the species Homo erectus, there are all kinds of creatures now that we have fossil record of um, that have been around for the last six million years. If you're looking specifically at the origins of our species, then what we're going to be doing is differentiating us, that is to say, the we were talking earlier about like the first two features of our lineage, exactly which is yeah. bipedalism and the canine teeth. Um, now let's talk about the last two features in our lineage, last which two. is okay, our chin and our forehead. And What's so special about those, uh, they're just the last things you see in the fossil record, um, bef before, uh our species, let's say Homo sapiens, you've got large-brained, upright, tool-using, smartish creatures out there, but they had much bigger faces than we have. 
And even though their brains were more or less the same size, it was differently shaped. It was longer from front to back. And our brains are rounder. We have no idea functionally what that means. But descriptively, our heads are rounder. We have foreheads and we have smaller faces and a chin down here. Those are the last two things you see in the fossil record that identify our species. And we see that about 160,000 years ago in East Africa for the first time. Do these anatomical features define humanity or is that, do we still have ways to go to get to what we, you know, in 2021 call ourselves humans? Are there subspecies within humanity? Um, in general, there are no living subspecies. No so we are all one subspecies, yeah. and that is the subspecies of round heads and chins. And of course, those traits are variable, but they're actually quite different. When you look at a Neanderthal head, for example, and they were living in Europe 160,000 years ago when the earliest round-headed chin people um, seem to have arisen in Africa, um, the, the Neanderthals were there. I mean, there were people out there in the world. Um, it's just that our particular anatomy, um, which seems to unify all living uh, humans as the same subspecies, we would differentiate us from the Neanderthals taxonomically. Um, some people would put Neanderthals in different species. Others would put them in a different subspecies. We now know that there was interbreeding going on. We had always thought it. Um, so if we use the interbreeding criterion as um, a marker of our species, then we'd put Neanderthals and humans in the same species, different subspecies. What was the motivation if, if, if we our origin was in Africa? What was the motivation for leave leaving Africa and and in a in our prior communications I went to great length to also say that um, Africa itself there was this period that they just spread throughout Africa it's a, it's a very bountiful and vast uh, vast continent uh, so were resources limited or what was the deal there well first of all it, it's probably not probably not the best way to talk about it as leaving Africa, because of course, most people remained in Africa. Only some people left Africa. <laughs> yeah. um, and they probably didn't put on their hiking boots and backpacks and go, you know, we're off to, um, you know, the Near East. Um, rather, what they did was simply reproduced very successfully. And um, these early humans had a very prolific way of interacting with the world. It was very successful culturally. Um, and as they bred, they needed more territory. These people were hunters and gatherers, what we would now call hunters and gatherers. And hunting and gathering works only at low population densities. And as you are successful and have more offspring over the generations, you need to spread out. And that's pretty much what they did. And I don't think it was anything, you know, over the period of five years, it was a period over thousands and tens of thousands. 
So this was not migration in, in, in our sort of modern sense. This was essentially uh, incremental geographical expansion of their expansion. Current, yeah. yeah. Um, when when I read uh, about uh, regions such as uh, the Arabia, for example, during the rise of Islam earlier, so 1400 years ago, or uh, even Timbuktu in Africa, from time to time, I come across literature uh, that suggests that those areas uh, may have been greener, uh, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, which, and, and I haven't researched it, this is not something that I focus. It was, you know, every time I've read this, it's been tangential to another history. This has always made me wonder how is it that our ancestors? select where they live uh, you know as as they were expanding uh, why would they select to live in siberia that's freezing or the sahara so is it the case that the climate has changed and those the, those original areas were uh, more hospitable uh, climate wise certainly the climate of today and the climate of the ice ages was considerably different um, I've always been struck by the fact that we find a lot of Neanderthal sites on the Spanish Riviera and on the French Riviera. And that bad taste, me, they had good taste. Exactly. <laughs> it tells me those were smart people. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so, so certainly they settled, you know, in nice places. Um, but the other interesting thing about the human adaptation of culture is that it, it enable human beings to settle in places that other species that were adapted to, let's say, uh, African climates um, wouldn't have been able to to survive in in Europe or Siberia or or wherever. Um, Because one of the things that culture enables you to do is to look at your environment and go, hey, what can I do with this stuff that will enable me to survive? Chimpanzees don't do that. You know, they they use tools, um, you know, twigs and things, um, and and you know, they're they're quite formidable um, and and smart creatures. But they don't approach the world thinking of the world as raw materials, and that seems to be something that humans do universally. We cut things and we burn things. And that is what we've been doing for millions and millions of years. Um, And of course, we transform our environment that way. Um, But it also enables us to survive in diverse environments. Uh, Environments that may be harsh, but we we can make it into a hospitable enough place for us to live in. Uh, Professor Marks, why don't we take a short break here and then talk about evolution? All right. All right. Professor Marks, if Ethiopia is in fact the earliest location from which humans with our modern anatomy emerged, some of which you were talking about in the last segment, does this mean that if we do our Ancestry.com way, 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 way back far enough, if that was in fact scientifically possible, that we'll discover we're all Ethiopians? 
<laughs> I know this is kind of, a, I'm being half cute here, but you see the sort of the, the gist of my question. Sure. It, but, and, but, and there are a couple of important points. I mean, not the least of which is that Ethiopian is not a natural subdivision of the human species. It's a nationality. Um, <laughs> and That's consequently, true. we have to be very careful about talking, yeah. um, you know, about kinship and identity in the modern world. Um, one, the fact is that all human populations are genetic subsets of Africans writ large. Um, so so the, the, the peoples of Africa subsume all the genetic or nearly all the genetic identity, uh, genetic um, uh, diversity in, in the human species. So in that sense, we are all descended from Africans. Um, but there's also another, another piece of the puzzle, and that is Ethiopia is where we've found the first forehead chin people. Um, that doesn't preclude the possibility that next year we might find one that's 10,000 years older in Jordan or Saudi Arabia or Pakistan. Um, you know, we're limited also by what we've found and where we've looked. Uh, so it wouldn't be that surprising if we found early chin and forehead people elsewhere in the Near East, in, in South Asia. Um, if we found such a person uh, 200,000 years ago in Norway, that would be kind of weird. Um, if we found such a person 200,000 years ago in L.A., I would definitely doubt it. Um, but, you know, anywhere around, um, you know, sort of the Mediterranean uh, is, is certainly feasible for finding early human population. If you found uh, the evidence of early forehead and chin people um, in L.A. or Norway, if, if it was numerous enough, do you think that would upend the uh, the belief that we all originated from uh, Africa, or would that would would there, would, there, would there just be aberrations that are not uh, explicable? Well, now I, I was talking in the singular, and you were talking in the plural. <laughs> I was. Right? You're right. So, I was. Yeah. Right. So yeah. If, if we find one, then it's anomalous and it's weird, and someone's you know playing a joke or something. You find a bunch of them, and then you start thinking about rewriting the textbooks. Um, but you know, as as we've been proceeding in in biological anthropology over the last century and a half, I think we think we have the rough outlines pretty pretty well sketched out. Um, we know what kinds of people were living in Norway. Uh, 150,000 years ago. And they had, if there were any people at all, they had long heads and large faces like Neanderthals who were living just south of Norway. And they were not considered humans, right? Well, <laughs> ambiguously human. I mean, that, that's a very interesting philosophical question of where you actually draw the line around the word human. Um, and if we consider Neanderthals within Homo sapiens, but a different subspecies, then you might well regard Neanderthals as a different kind of human. 
And of course, what we're doing is replicating what Europeans had to deal with when they first encountered Native Americans in the 14, in the late 1400s. Uh, you know, they tried to make scholarly sense of very, very different people. So different that they had never, that, that Europeans didn't know what to make of them. And I think that, you know, now we expand the circle further um, and we imagine what it would be like to meet a Neanderthal. Oh boy. And, you know, how different would we consider them? And, and the thing that I think it's important to remember is that we don't hang out and we don't judge people by how big their face is and how long their skull is. You don't hang out with people on the basis of their face, face size. So um, even though we scientists differentiate Neanderthals from humans on the basis of, you know, skull shape and, and facial, facial size, it's not clear that they would have done the same thing 150,000 years ago. We don't know. You mean Whether, as in Homo sapiens and Neanderthals may not have made that distinction? Exactly. Uh, you know, if you were transported in a in a time machine back to 160,000 years ago and you went, oh, well, there's the forehead and chin people just like me, they would probably see you as just as alien as they see a Neanderthal. Why? Because you don't speak their language. You don't dress like them. You, you have nothing in common with them. That's really what uh, humans use as cues for social markers. You know, we don't we don't uh, hang out with people that that have similarly shaped heads to us. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but then you know, I'm I'm broad minded. Well, um, now you've made me so sensitive to people's chins and foreheads. I'm going to have to bring a measuring tape next time, Professor Marks. Now, we come out of Africa um, from whatever uh, sort of focus point that we started from, slowly expand. I'm assuming that our skin was dark, black in color, perhaps. Um, first, is that assumption correct? Do we know that? Um, we... Okay, skin color does not fossilize. Um, so <laughs> we we assume that since people in Africa now have dark skin, that people in Africa back then also had dark skin. Um, and I think that's a fairly robust assumption. Um, um, so, go ahead. So then, so then the issue is, um, and, and actually, this is kind of interesting from a historical standpoint. Um, if you go back to the pre-Darwinian days and uh, in the 1700s, people who weren't even thinking about descent from the apes and were really caught up in understanding the Bible, but also reconciling it with new scientific discoveries. One of the things that they were stuck on was the fact that the Bible says we're all descended from Adam and Eve. Okay. We're all descended from Adam and Eve. Now, Let's say for the sake of argument, Adam and Eve were black. Well, if Adam and Eve were black, then where did white people come from? Exactly. Or if they and, were white, where did black people come from? Exactly. Exactly. So the very earliest theories of evolution 
that it's the same microevolution, meaning, you know, theories for a natural change of physical form over time had to be developed in order to make the biblical story stick and account for human diversity. Interesting. So, oh, wow. So it had a religious underpinning. Sure. The, the biblical literalists were abolitionists because, of course, the, you know, we're all brothers and sisters under the skin and also the first microevolutionists. And um, so today we, you know, we have population genetics and that developed in the 1930s. And that gives us the rules by which genetics changes in a population. And we, we know pretty much what those rules are now. Um, the gene pool can track the environment in various ways. If people with certain genetic attributes outbreed people with other genetic attributes, then the gene pool tracks that, uh, that fact. And whether it's um, uh, people needing um, to become depigmented because there's less sunlight at higher latitudes, that's the, the um, argument that we have now. In the highlands of Scotland, the, whatever, Norway or Himalayas or something. Yeah, right? or, or, just, or just, you know, the middle of Europe. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot less sunlight than there is in the in, uh, uh, middle of Africa. And um, melanin in the skin blocks out ultraviolet light. Um, but you need some ultraviolet light in order to survive, in order for your bones to grow, to, 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 to make vitamin D in your body. So sunlight is good. Too much sunlight is bad. Um, too much sunlight gives you skin tumors. Um, but just enough sunlight is good. There was just enough sunlight in Africa. As dark-skinned people moved into the um, more temperate latitudes, Presumably, they didn't get or they didn't get enough sunlight and became depigmented in order to survive. Some physical features also changed uh, faces, eyes, uh, amount of body hair, all of that. Did they have to do with climate as well or? We don't know. Um, see, we know how gene pools track the environment, which leads populations to microevolve adaptively. And by adaptively, I just mean tracking the environment. But we also know that there are ways that gene pools can just screw up randomly. Uh, and that's why different populations, for example, have um, higher proportions of otherwise rare genetic diseases. Okay, it's just random, can I say bad words? Sure. <laughs> Random shit in the gene pool. Okay. <laughs> I see. Um, and every population has something like that simply as a result of their own histories. Um, and so that is the result of a, a genetic process we call genetic drift. Um, and that's the way that neutral changes or even bad changes can accumulate in the gene pool as a repository for genetic variation that might become beneficial 
later on under different circumstances. So we know how populations can track the environment adaptively. We know how populations can change without tracking the environment adaptively and even non-adaptively. Um, and that's pretty much the toolbox that we use for explaining uh, microevolutionary change. The problem is that if you name a feature, nasal breadth, how wide your nose is, we know that that varies from place to place. It does? <laughs> I didn't oh, even yeah, know well, that's a feature. <laughs> I mean, Europeans have narrow noses. And, um, you know, uh, Africans have wider noses. I mean, that's just interesting. Oh, you knew that. No, no. Now that you say it, it comes <laughs> to mind. Yeah, but it's nothing, you know, it's not something that I would think about. Exactly. Uh, well, I'm a yeah. professional anthropologist, so I think about those things. Is there a reason for that? Or is this one of those? There might drifts? be, but we don't know. I mean, that's the thing. It's hard to tell random shit to the gene pool from adaptive shit to the gene pool. And so I can come up with a nice story about why depigmentation was valuable for Europeans in high latitudes. I have absolutely no idea why their noses would get narrow. There might be a reason or there might not be a reason. Based on what you're sharing, could there, could there have been, let's say, 100,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, whatever, uh, a population of uh, black humans that lived in uh, what is today uh, modern day China, but then uh, people with Asian, East Asian features became more dominant, genetically speaking, and those that had black skin over time uh, sort of died off, genetically speaking, of course. Uh, is, is this, are such a things possible? There, there's a lot that's possible. And part of the problem is, remember, we only have skeletal remains yeah. to work with. And things like uh, form of the eye and, uh, and skin color um, and, and features of the lips, you know, that stuff doesn't fossilize. So that, that kind of stuff, um, obviously, you can assume that the soft features, you know, in China 100,000 years ago resembled the soft parts in Chinese people today. You might assume that. It might also be entirely gratuitous. Um, yeah. we, we do know, for example, from um, very cutting edge studies of ancient DNA, that early Europeans uh, seem to have had darker complexions, but bluer eyes than they were expecting to find, uh, at least from, um, from the genomes of these um, ancient Europeans. So we might not uh, rely too strongly on our assumptions about modern human features for understanding um, ancient human features. Professor Marx, uh, we'll be back after a short break and we'll talk about early humans in America and their features and how that was different than their counterparts in Asia, Europe, and Africa. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, 
you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. And it's easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and attributions to our theme music. And thank you. Professor Marks, please explain what scientists found in New Mexico's White Sands National Park. And why is it significant? Well, what they seem to have is evidence that there were people in the Americas over 20,000 years ago. And the reason that's important is that there's a lot of evidence that people were in the Americas after about 14,000 years ago. Very little evidence, very ambiguous evidence that there were people in the Americas before that. And there have been various archaeological sites, and somebody says, oh, this is 20,000 years old, this is 30,000 years old, it's got uh, tools, and it's got a, a date. And then you look carefully at it, and the tools are shit, or the date is shit, or the site is shit. And, and it, it, you know, it, there's this old saying in science, extraordinary claims require extraordinary standards of evidence. So we have a lot of archaeological data for people after a certain time and very little archaeological data for people before that time. This so those extraordinary be, claims of, uh, of, of dated stuff don't meet the extraordinary standards. That's what yeah. you're saying. I yeah. see. And, and so this seems to be well-dated evidence of human occupation over 20,000 years. Again, if it stands up, this is footprint, right? What we're talking about is footprints? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, the thing is, archaeologists are generally dealing with stone tools or bones. I mean, that's what people leave behind is their ancestors or their grandparents and the stuff that they made. That's there after 14,000. So the question is, if there were people in the Americas before 14,000 or so, what the hell were they doing? Why did they leave no evidence or such, such little evidence? Now, maybe they went extinct. Um, maybe they didn't make such an important, such a significant mark on the environment, in which case, well, they must have had tools. Well, they didn't leave them. That's the thing. You get the tools at 14,000, but you don't find the tools before then. And remember, this: these are footprints. These are not tools. So where are the tools? Where are the hearts? Everywhere that humans go, they're cutting and burning, but not until 14,000 years ago in the Americas. So it's possible that there were small groups of people here that, and, and maybe they were uh, on the coast and their sites have been uh, uh, moved underwater now and, and aren't accessible. But um, what if there were people here before 14,000, um, they clearly didn't leave much of an imprint. What happened to them? Who knows? People may have gone extinct. Um, I, I tend to think that the human adaptation 
tends to be good. If they were able to make it either across the sea or over the uh, the the, the uh, ice bridge, uh, I should think they could have made it through California and Nevada. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, as the people again after fourteen thousand, boom! That's exactly what they do. They come down from the north and they expand into the whole continent. Um, so the. I want to make sure that I I understand this correctly. The findings of the study, which started in 2016 and was mm -hmm. published last uh, last month in the journal Science, yes, the findings are have not been refuted that these belong uh, these footprints uh, date back to 20,000 years or so. That has not been refuted, right? There seems to be no good evidence to doubt those claims. What's pending is more evidence, including evidence of tools, as you, you, you stated, to corroborate such a date. Exactly. And, and remember, everybody makes mistakes. I mean, it's no, it's no great sin in science to make a mistake. And, and in fact, if you go back over the um, archaeological history or over the history of archaeology, there are always people making claims about ancient inhabitants of the Americas that turned out not to be true. Um, this may be one of them, or this may be the one that turns out to be true. Um, but on its best day, if it turns out to be true, what's interesting now is why didn't those people who were there for 7,000 years not making tools, not making hearths, not leaving us their bones. What the hell were they doing? Maybe we have to dig deeper. Absolutely. And as I as I was reading in preparation for my conversation with you, I came across um, these narratives uh, about how humans came across to the Americas, and this is what threw me off. This is the following words: by crossing an ice-free land bridge from asia what is an ice-free land bridge uh, like did the water recede i mean how, how, how is that even possible exactly again we're talking about the ice age uh -huh. or ice ages okay. and so a lot of the water in the oceans is frozen in the form of glaciers on the land so if the water is being frozen on the land as glaciers, it means that sea level is going down because the water is now frozen as glaciers. Oh. And as the sea level goes down, then, you know, low-lying areas are now exposed. And, and of course, after the Ice Age, the ice melts and that stuff becomes the Bering Sea today. So conceptually, based on what you're saying, is that a lot of the water is 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 sort of held up in in ice that is formed on land. Exactly. Glaciers. One could argue that the Bering Strait was actually dry land, land at some point. That's exact. That's exactly what uh, what the scientists think. Um, because again, if you're if you're going from Siberia across to Alaska. 
and you're walking on a glacier, there's nothing there. You got to eat something. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if there's thousands of years and land to walk over, then it's just the same thing as walking from Ethiopia to uh, Pakistan or walking, you know, walking from from Alaska down to San Diego. Did the early Native Americans look similar or have, uh, I think it's too far, is too much of a stretch to say culture similarity, at least uh, features, similar features in skin color to uh, the natives of Siberia? Um, And I'm picking those two, Siberia, just as a, proximity to the Bering Strait. Uh, Sure. There are cultural and physical and genetic similarities between people in Alaska and people in Siberia. Absolutely. Um, The peoples, uh, you know, Native American peoples today uh, look somewhat different than Native American, than their earliest ancestors, let's say 10, 12,000 years ago, which is the earliest um, skeletal remains that we have, clearly- In what were, sense? How do, they, how do they look different? Um, In terms, it, it's actually quite interesting, again, the, the racist history of this field, but early anthropologists were digging up uh, pre-Columbian uh, graves in, in Colorado and were struck by how much more skeletally diverse, how how much different their heads and faces looked from what they were used to in looking at modern Native American heads and faces. And obviously there's been a lot of genocide intervening. So, you know, you you can understand that. But when the, the anthropologists in the 1930s started trying to classify the heads, which were clearly Native American, pre-Columbian, they would sort them into, well, this one looks kind of like an Australian. So I'll call that pseudo-Australoid, because I know it's not really Australian because there was no contact between Native Australians and pre-Columbian Americans. This one I'll call pseudo-European. And what they were trying to, to, to do was come up with a vocabulary to acknowledge that there was a lot more skeletal diversity in early Native American populations than in modern Native American populations. And this actually came to a head in the 1990s when they found uh, a very ancient Native American skeleton called that they called Kennewick Man. And Kennewick Man? Kennewick Man, yeah. It was mm-hmm. found in, in Washington State. And basically the... Um, uh, the law said that since it was found on federal land and it's ancient Native American, it belongs to the Native American tribes. And if the scientists want to study it, they have to ask real nicely if they can study it. And the, the law, by the way, was passed in 1990 called NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Well, the reactionary scientists, unfortunately, decided that They didn't like that law. And so what they wanted to do was to try and study it without the appropriate permission. And they went to the press and said, well, you know, um, this isn't even really a Native American 
um, because his face, his skull looks more European than Native American. He's got too narrow a nose and, and too square a jaw or something like that. Um, so they started coming up with these weird stories of Native America, of America being populated first by Europeans. And it was all quite scandalous because most this is of as or as late as the 1990s, 1990s. Yes. Oh boy. So they were quite saying scandalous. this, this, this dated skeleton, that's presumably a thousand or two, some thousands of years old. They're saying that these, this is actually European. Yes. That's what they were to saying. To get around that law. Yep. And, and so the rest of us, you know, would not accept that nonsense. And eventually, just a few years ago, they finally did, they finally got some genetic evidence on Kennewick Man and found that he's most, his DNA is most similar to the Native American samples that they had looked at. So obviously the whole thing was bullshit from top to bottom. But, you know, it, it just shows what, what a sad racist political history is tied up in making scientific stories about who we are and where we come from which is the science that we anthropologists are engaged in. I have uh, two questions before we close this segment. Actually, three questions. The first question is, uh, what was the date of Kenny, Kenny Wickman? Am I saying that right? Kenny uh, Wickman, yeah. Uh, his, um, uh, his, uh, skele his skeleton. Um, 9,000 BP, I think. BP okay. is before the present. So he, he was quite old, yeah. So second question is, why uh, is it that early Native American um, skeletal remains are so diverse? Do we find that, for example, in Europe or Asia around the same time period, diversity of... Uh... <laughs> we do find that modern patterns of diversity don't seem to be very good predictors of ancient patterns of diversity. Um, and that's true in Europe and probably true in Africa and Asia as well. Um, when it comes to ancient Native Americans, remember that between 9,000 know, uh, years ago and today, there's been a lot of very bad things that have happened. Yeah. Um, and, and consequently, um, probably a lot of constriction of biological diversity happens as a result of genocide. So th that may have something to do with it. Uh, I have probably had a lot to do with it, yeah. Okay. My third question is this. Um, I've come across this uh, several times in my readings uh, that at one point there were horses in the Americas and then they went extinct. I've shared this with several people and they laugh at me. How can that be? Horses... Some say horses have always been here and some say, no, they, you know, you're wrong. So just settle this for me, please. Um, yeah, uh, there, there were um, horses. One of the things that the people who came over from Siberia 14,000 years ago seem to have brought with them is a lot of death of large animals. So what do you mean a lot of death? Like they a, killed a lot along the way? Well, there were let's let's put it this way. There were a lot of extinctions that happened shortly after people arrived here in a big way. And wow. those extinctions were gen, were what we call megafauna, which just means large animals. So there were large elephants, 
woolly mammoths, right? There, mm-hmm. there were large bears. There were large uh, lions. In the Americas, 15,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, that aren't there 10,000 years ago. And horses are some of those animals that went extinct over that period, the the Pleistocene megafauna extinction. But there were a lot of species uh, of generally large animals that went extinct um, around that time. And, And again, we don't know exactly why. We think humans had something to do with it, but no one really knows for sure. We've been doing it to the environment from many, many years ago, right? Well, I mean, there, th- that that can become a morality tale, absolutely. Um, and it's been used as such. We, we don't know exactly what the relationship was between the extinctions and the, and the humans. We do know, of course, we have plenty of archaeological evidence that humans were hunting large animals, right? Yeah. And did they yeah. hunt them to extinction? We don't know. Uh, Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Marks as we get into the perspective. (music) Professor Marks, are we humans evolving now in the modern era? I mean, intellectual, I know we need a lot of evolution. Well, let's put it this way. I am. That's one of those questions that goes yes and no. Um, we are evolving. Our gene pool is being tweaked in various ways. So it's certainly conceivable that um, in, in response to uh, ancient pandemics like bubonic plague and and influenza that those had a little effect on the human gene pool some some people survived better than others and you know developed immunity we know that that's happened um, across the malaria belt in the last 10,000 or 15,000 years across Africa and Asia that the gene pools have responded to the threats uh, in the environment. But we also know that we do most of our adapting, the vast majority of our adapting now, technologically, not biologically. And so, sorry? What do you mean technologically adapting? Uh, We're talking about our environment or our bodies? Yeah, no, I mean that we solve problems and and allow ourselves to, to survive and reproduce by technological solutions rather than by physical, genetic, physiological solutions. Um, you know, we, we, we uh, make telecommunications in order to, to, to communicate better instead of yelling louder. Um, we, we, um, oh, there's a lot of yelling going on. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, the adapting that we do is for the most part, we look for technological solutions to the problems that we face. Is, is adapting the same as evolution? It's part of evolution. It's a big part of evolution. Um, ev- evolution involves adaptive and non-adaptive aspects. There are some things that involve solving environmental problems, and that's part of evolution. And there are some things that are, again, just random shit to the gene pool. And that's also evolution, 
Um, it's just not problem solving. Um, based on what you're saying, uh, technological sort of ad adaptation, does that mean that we're evolving at a much faster rate than in the past? Well, again, certainly evolving culturally at a much faster rate than in the past. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know three quarters of the things about computers that my daughter knows. Um, you know, Ditto. We, we, <laughs> we, we live in a situation where we expect our children's lives to be different from our own. What an unusual assumption that is in human history. You know, How recent uh, is that? A hundred years, a hundred yeah, years? Yeah, you know, a, a couple of centuries at the most. Yeah. Um, you know, for if you grew up anywhere in the world, any time at all before a couple of hundred years ago, your assumption was your kids would live the same lives that you led. Do you think we're also genetically evolving and changing at a faster rate? And I say that... Um, I, I lack really, I lack confidence in stating that question for the following, because one, we have mass migrations going on. But if you read some of the history books that talk about, you know, how the Hans came from northern China all the way to Europe and all sorts of things, there was mass migration going on back then, too. So does that mean we or how the Turks came over and all of that? Mm -hmm. so, the, so does that mean that relatively speaking, sort of the genetic evolution of humans are comparable to the past or is it faster? Well, again, you know, one of the things that we're seeing is that our gene pools are becoming more homogeneous because they're fusing with one another. Yeah. And, yeah. and the way that we call that phenomenon gene flow and where it's happening is, of course, in large urban centers, which have only existed once again in, in small parts of the world for a fairly small period of time. Um, we, so that seems to be the major factor going on in the human gene pool. We don't find people isolating their gene pool so much anymore, and we don't find people adapting genetically to things, we adapt technologically. So it does seem as though um, if we project sort of uh, into the future, the human gene pool is getting more homogeneous. But if we start thinking about the production of diversity, we get diversity by having isolated populations and by having um, environments that we can't even predict that we'll have to adapt to. In the and future. I, I think that's going to come with outer space. I think both of those things are going to oh, happen boy. with colonizing outer space. Maybe we'll we should small uh, populations. Maybe small we should have Jeff Bezos here. <laughs> um, if you want our audience to remember just one point about human evolution, including outer space, uh, Professor Marx, what would that be? Well, I'd say that, you know, what we're doing is telling stories of who we are and where we came from. And these stories that we tell are constrained by the methods of science and by the data of science. And because they're scientific, they're culturally authoritative because we extend that cultural authority to science. That in turn gives us anthropologists certain responsibilities 
Um, we have to be sensitive to our racist and, and colonialist histories. And it's a very different kind of scientific endeavor than, say, fruit fly evolution is. Yeah. Where you don't have to worry about that sort of thing. I mean, this is a biopolitical and biocultural uh, science that we work in when we study our own ancestors and, and our own diversity. Um, until I spoke to you, I didn't appreciate how much uh, politics and sort of uh, uh, colonialism are in our past, uh, sort of European imperialism played a big role in, in the history of anthropology itself. Thank you so much for sharing that with me and our audience. Uh, Professor Marx, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the PLA News anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history, that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us most of which are based on years of scholarship and research. And we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the Peel.News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past. Rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our current events. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving comments about this episode on our Instagram page at thepeel.news. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with appeal.news.